Court Avenue was extremely popular back then. But like going into a building, being able to like feel how much life had been lived in there before. I find that's what's interesting about architecture is when architecture reflects the time that it was built in and also reflects like a specific set of values. So it was a, a big, huge, gracious apartment. And, Great and, for um, parties. Yeah. And, and it was really a lot of the experiences that happened here that built a friendship that's lasted really a lifetime. Welcome to the Pasadena Project, episode two, the first of its kind. When I think of Winnipeg, I think of these like really old buildings and these character styles. Well, I, yeah, this was, this was definitely a character style. This is Marina Jansen. She lived in the Pasadena from 2016 to 2018. Modern homes, but like going into a building and being able to like feel how much life had been lived in there before was definitely an appeal. One of the interesting things about like living in uh, a building that's like over a hundred years old is that the people who it was originally built for lived such different lifestyles than us. Obviously, the kitchen was not a communal place to to be in. And so that's, that's an interesting transition to go from like living in a place where the, the kitchen is a communal area with lots of space for gathering to the kitchen is the servants' quarters. <laughs> and it's like in the back of the apartment, completely closed off. Marina was actually my roommate for about a year in the Pasadena. And the quirks she's describing are the same things that drew me to the building and made me want to figure out why the building was built the way it was. The Pasadena was built during a time of intense growth south of the Assiniboine River. Much of that growth was spurred by the development of Crescentwood, a neighborhood immediately to the west of where the Pasadena was built, and that's today bordered by Academy Road to the north, Corridon Avenue to the south, Wellington Crescent to the east, and Cambridge Street to the west. Crescentwood was developed by prominent real estate agent C.H. Enderton, and is recognized by many as Winnipeg's first planned suburb. It was designed as a place for Winnipeg's white elite to escape from the increasingly crowded and increasingly diverse city center. It was home to many of the city's first millionaires, and their huge homes along streets such as Wellington Crescent, Ruskin Row, and Kingsway would be familiar to many who know the area. In his book Stolen City, Owen Taves reminds us to connect the city's newly formed capitalist class to the violent displacement of indigenous peoples whose lands their million-dollar mansions were built upon. For example, two of the first residents of Crescentwood were Alfred J. Andrews and Alicia F. Hutchings, both of whom moved to addresses on Wellington Crescent in 1906. Andrews, who was mayor of Winnipeg from 1898 to 1899, had also previously taken up arms against the Métis 
during the 1885 Northwest Rebellion. And Hutchings was a factory owner who wrote horrifyingly racist poetry that glorified indigenous deaths and so-called Indian graves as a symbol of white progress. Here's an excerpt from Stolen City that gives a sense of the context within which the Crescentwood area was developed. By the turn of the 20th century, Winnipeg was home to a ruling block of millionaire financiers, speculators, rentiers, and manufacturers who dominated the political life of the region. These men, and not the small prairie homesteaders, were the true wheat kings of the Northwest. Investors who bought and sold wheat on the grain exchange in Winnipeg for huge profits, railway men who reaped exorbitant transportation fees from small farmers, and the land sharks who speculated in stolen indigenous lands. This is the landscape in which the Pasadena was built in 1912. The building was developed by Thomas Sharp, who was mayor of Winnipeg from 1904 to 1906. Thomas Sharp had quite an interesting career that had its its ups and downs. He was uh, an Irish immigrant. This is David Burley, a historian who has researched and written about Winnipeg's urban development. He also wrote the entry in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography for Thomas Sharp. He spoke with me from his home in Ontario. found a good business in cement, <laughs> making sidewalks. And earlier in his working life, he, he actually had been associated with the trade union movement and had participated in union activities, which seems rather inconsistent with his anti-labor positions as mayor of Winnipeg. One of the defining moments of Sharp's mayorship was the 1906 streetcar workers' strike which is viewed by many historians as a precursor to the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike. By 1906, the streetcar was an integral part of city life in Winnipeg. The city's 90,000 residents could ride the streetcar down Main Street from the Assiniboine River all the way to the northern city limits, and down Portage Avenue from Main Street to Headingley. It connected neighborhoods running down Selkirk Higgins, River, and Sherbrooke, with spur lines to Elmwood, St. Boniface, and East Kildonan. In 1906, tracks were laid across the Maryland Bridge, along Academy Road to Stafford Street, connecting the new neighborhood of Crescentwood with the rest of the city. But as demand for the streetcar grew, streetcar workers were becoming increasingly unhappy. They were frustrated by their low pay, long hours, unsafe working conditions, and lack of recognized unionization. And the public was largely on the side of the strikers, declaring, we walk, and joining striking workers in the streets. But Thomas Sharp came down hard on strikers and labor leaders. He called out the militia to uh, break up demonstrations and to restore what he thought should be order. In that, he also was was willing to use machine guns to um, clear the crowd. And that's kind of an, a significant initiative because, of course, during the 1919 general strike, 
strike, um, the 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 army did set up machine guns in in fear that there was going to be a uh, violent revolution in Winnipeg. So there's kind of continuity between uh, Sharp's actions as mayor and then what happened in 1919. Sharp did not have much involvement in the 1919 Winnipeg general strike but it seems relevant that Crescentwood and the area around the Pasadena was the center of anti-labor organizing in 1919. Thomas Deacon, another former mayor, lived at 144 Gale Avenue, just a few blocks from the Pasadena, and is known for hiring a detective agency to supply strikebreakers from Montreal. Other residents of the area, who were almost certainly part of Sharp's circle, included Hugh Osler, James Coyne, Isaac Pitlado and William Swetman, who were all prominent members of the Citizens Committee of 1000, a group of business elite who opposed union organizing in the city, and who used racist language to attack strikers. Here's another excerpt from Stolen City. As soon as the Winnipeg general strike began, the Committee of 1000 published ads in the Free Press, Tribune, and Telegram casting strikers as part of a subhuman race bearers of an inferior brand of European civilization, and urging the federal government to deport, quote, the undesirable alien and land him back in the bilge waters of European civilization from whence he sprung, end quote. It's impossible to know to what extent these sentiments were shared by Thomas Sharp, or by the people who moved into the Pasadena after the building was completed. But those first tenants of the building did match the demographics of the broader neighborhood, the Henderson's directory from 1914 shows that seven of the building's 24 apartments were occupied by managers or presidents of companies, including Edward Macklin, the president of the Free Press newspaper. Other tenants included employees of Great West Life Assurance Company, accountants, and a surgeon dentist. Thomas Sharp himself and members of his family lived in the building until at least the 1950s. There wasn't any rules like about how you develop property, right? So you, you know, these, these owners, This is Murray Peterson, uh, historic buildings officer for the city of Winnipeg. Sort of what they needed. So, so the Sharp family obviously wanted a, you know, a nice place. So we, they were going to, you know, spend some money and, and then it ends up, you know, makes them some money, right? Because they can rent it out rather than building a single family, right? So that, that speaks to how much, how much capital there was and how much success there was as a business person in Winnipeg. So we were on the uh, third floor, second from the top, and it was basically the uh, southeast wing of the building. Uh, so they had a beautiful view to the south, you know, uh, amongst the shade trees facing towards... Uh, this is Martin Krawitz. He lived in the Pasadena in the early 90s, in one of the large four-bedroom suites in the building's A block. The first tenants of that apartment included Robert S. Bickle, who owned a company that produced some of the country's first motorized fire equipment, and Ernest Payne, a superintendent at Canadian Pacific Railway. Uh, then on to the sun porch, and then from the dining room, it would lead to the, a court, the narrow corridor leading into the kitchen. It was a small uh, dine-in area, and a full kitchen. And then you could go further down the hallway to, I guess originally it was designed as a maid's quarters that could be used as a bedroom or a hobby room or whatever. So I think it was about 1,600 square feet and a great, great layout and concept. 
I would think the for the developer of the Pasadena, they were looking at do we fit into the area so uh, you know you're going to get a certain clientele or you're going to attract a certain clientele with a certain level of luxury and then a, and attached to that obviously was the rent so if you you know plunk down in the middle of, of you know a high-end neighborhood like it was you would expect a certain amount of rent back and so you would you would create spaces that you could justify renting it out for that much yeah, I remember walking, we got the keys and we went walking down that hallway just thinking, boy, we got the Ritz. You know, it was, it was so big and spacious. And, and, uh, this is Margot Foxford. She lived in the Pasadena with her husband, Giles Bugaliskis, in the 1980s. Rochester apartments. But remember, we, boy, we thought we'd hit it big when we, <laughs> when we got that apartment. Well, it was huge because it had the, the maid's room at the back. and. Mm-hmm. I like hearing Margot and Giles talk about their apartment because it gives a sense of the grandeur of the building. And it helps us understand who the Pasadena was built for back in 1912. The Pasadena, it would have been in trying to attract a certain clientele. Again, they used a very unique, I mean, they used the red tile, they used the Spanish mission uh, architecture, which was odd. There's not a lot of it in the city. Um, I went, when, when we said we were doing this, I went back to, to, through my notes or through my, you know, the, my records to see what we had. And uh, I noticed that sort of in the mid-30s, um, Safeway, there were little Safeway stores and Piggly Wiggly stores, uh, grocery stores uh, in neighborhoods, and they used red tile a lot, That's certainly the Safeways. Uh, and there's still a few of them around. It was a unique style to use, like the red tile is, is unique. And, and that part of that, I guess, was so that they stood out. This style of architecture that Murray Peterson is talking about is the Spanish mission style. It was used by the architect Samuel Hooper on the Pasadena, but on very few other buildings in Winnipeg. And that may have been why the apartment building was so celebrated when it was first built. Here is what the Manitoba Free Press had to say about the building in January 1913. This handsome apartment block, which has been erected on the northwest corner of Macmillan Avenue and Hugo Street, Fort Rouge, by Thomas Sharp, is now almost ready for occupation. The structure is unique, being the first of its kind in Winnipeg. It is built on concrete and stone foundation, while the remainder of the building is of hollow tile, with a roof of real clay Spanish tile. It contains 29 suites fitted in the most elaborate style. The picture accompanying this caption shows the Pasadena as it would have looked more than 100 years ago. Although it's grainy and in black and white, you can clearly make out the building's distinctive roof. The bottom two floors clad in brick and lighter colored stucco finishing the upper floors. And one thing that's hard to miss and that attests to the passing of time are the short trees along the boulevard, which look as though they had just been planted. Here is Murray Peterson with more about the Spanish mission style. I mean, the most uh, noticeable element would be the the tile tile roof. You also get flat surfaces, uh, normally stucco. Um, it's it's you know when you think of when you think of a, like a western, a spaghetti western, and you see the you know see those little the low houses with uh, you know white stucco walls and you know almost no ornamentation. That's 
basically the Spanish mission style. Because it also strikes me that like it's called the Pasadena as well. So like the combination of the Spanish mission style calling it the Pasadena seems to kind of like evoke something that also doesn't feel very Winnipeg. Should so. be palm trees. There really yeah. should be palm trees in the in the courtyard for sure. Uh, I, and and I mean I don't I don't know. I guess that could very well be what the client was looking for, right? That seems like too much of a coincidence for sure, Pasadena and then the style. But and and Samuel Hooper, who was the architect, was not. I wouldn't say that he was known for thinking way outside the box. I mean, he became Manitoba's first uh, provincial architect, so he was firmly based in uh, the classical style. Um, so this one, <laughs> I think he let his hair down a little bit on this one. Maybe I don't know. That's I, that could be true. <laughs> So Hooper's background was was stonemasonry. So um, I think, honestly, I think that's part of the reason that um, that he was chosen as the provincial architect because they were looking at building provincial buildings. Uh, you know, we're trying to make a statement, and they're trying to uh, strength stability. You know, it's a new province, but look at us. We've got these beautiful buildings, and of course, we had limestone, which is you know such a spectacular construction material. Um, and Hooper was was good at it. When Hooper died, a lengthy obituary was published in the Free Press, alongside tributes from prominent Winnipeggers. A cablegram was received from London, England yesterday to the effect that Samuel Hooper, provincial architect of Manitoba, died suddenly on that day. He had been dangerously ill for two or three days, and his brother, James Hooper of Winnipeg, his death came as a surprise. He was still in office as the provincial architect and didn't live to see many of his designs built, including the Pasadena. The late Mr. Hooper was among the best-known members of the architectural profession in Winnipeg and occupied the position of architect in the Public Works Department of the provincial government. He came to Manitoba 30 years ago and took up residence in this city, establishing the Hooper Marble Works. While engaged in that business, he designed and executed the monument erected in St. John's Cemetery to the memory of the Honorable John Norquay, and also the splendid monument in City Hall Square, commemorating the deeds of valor performed by the soldiers who fell in the Real Rebellion. That splendid monument they're describing was one of Samuel Hooper's first major designs he worked on in Winnipeg. It's a tall column with a mustachioed man wearing a pointy hat on top. Today you can find it across from City Hall, between the Centennial Concert Hall and the Manitoba Museum. The monument commemorates members of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles killed during their first military action. And that first action? It was the violent military response to the Northwest Rebellion, the 1885 resistance of Métis people led by Louis Riel who felt the Canadian government wasn't protecting their rights, land, and survival. Samuel Hooper, just like Thomas Sharp, must also be recognized as a participant in the settler colonial project. His monuments to Canadian soldiers who squashed Indigenous resistance are part of what Owen Taves and other historians describe as the glorification of colonial violence and the conquest of Indigenous peoples. During Hooper's tenure as provincial architect, he designed dozens of buildings. Many of them are still in use, and maybe buildings we pass by every day and know very well. From St. Mary's Academy to the Winnipeg Archives building on William Avenue 
to the University of Manitoba's administration building. Many of them, including the Pasadena, have been recognized by the city as buildings worth preserving. And that's actually what Murray Peterson's job is, deciding which buildings are of historical importance and why we should protect them. I said before that architecture really is an art, is art, right? It, 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 it evokes emotions, it's trying to say something, it, it's telling a story. We do have a lot of apartment blocks, but we're saving apartment blocks that tell a story. Because I think it's important to understand as these neighborhoods start to change and, and, and really, you know, we're getting a lot of infill and we get all these things that are happening now today, we, st- we still have, we're protecting these, these parts of our history. I get that. I really do. After all, that's why I'm doing this project. Because I think the Pasadena has a story worth telling. But I also think it's prudent to acknowledge all parts of this story, not just the good or the happy parts. As I unravel the story of the Pasadena, it's hard not to see how this building is woven into so many of the complicated and difficult histories of this city and this country. From the displacement of Métis families living in Roostertown, to the violent oppression of Indigenous peoples during the 1885 Northwest Rebellion, to the suppression of labor in 1906 and later 1919. I think it's important to keep these parts of the story in mind as we continue to tease apart the story of this building. That was episode two of the Pasadena Project. Thank you for listening. The theme music for this series is by Bougie Belgique. This episode also featured music by Chad Crouch, Circus Marcus, Poddington Bear, and the Victor Dance Orchestra. You can find a link to all of them in the show notes. This episode also featured some more excerpts from the book Stolen City, Racial Capitalism and the Making of Winnipeg by Owen Taves. Thanks again to Ryan Friesen and Kirsten Werman for their help voicing the texts heard on this episode. For more information about the Pasadena Project, including links to everything referenced on the podcast, check out pasadenaproject.com. On the next episode, we'll talk more about Winnipeg's apartment boom and about how it affected the lives of women in the city. The Pasadena Project is supported by the Winnipeg Architecture Foundation and funded by the City of Winnipeg, the Province of Manitoba, and the Winnipeg Arts Council. The Pasadena Project is produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. 